0: Hey, what's up everybody? This is Jeff Grammer with the Albuquerque Journal and this is episode 17 now of the Talking Grammar Podcast. Glad you're listening. However, you're here, whatever got you here. I'm, I'm appreciative that you're giving this podcast a, a chance. The numbers have been good. The feedback's been great. So I thank you guys for listening and thank you guys for your feedback too. However, you're listening on SoundCloud, on iTunes, where I'm hoping you're subscribing and, and uh, leaving us a review, leaving us some ratings. And you can also see a full archive of every episode of the Talking Grammar podcast on abqjournal.com slash sports. And the podcast is primarily about Lobo Basketball. That is my primary job at the Albuquerque Journal, though as many of you know, I certainly cover a lot more than just Lobo Basketball, but my primary job is to cover Lobo Basketball, College Basketball, and the Mountain West Conference in particular. So that's what this podcast is essentially about for the most part, but what I was hoping to do as the beat writer for the Albuquerque Journal, the only media outlet that still invests in covering the Lobo Basketball program on the road, at home, every day, Bringing you guys as much as we can. I wanted to find a way to bring you guys even more than just the articles that, that you see in the print edition or posted online. And that's sort of what this podcast is about. It's, it's about trying to bring you guys some of the conversations I have with people in and around the program that aren't just post game interviews. They aren't press conferences. They aren't just talking to players and coaches about the X's and O's all the time. Although I do bring you some of that as well. We've had plenty of podcasts with coaches and players from the Lobos too. But today's sort of the, the gist of, of what this podcast can be as well. And that's people I see around the program that in this case Dick Hunsicker, the the veteran basketball coach, one of the one of the most well connected college basketball coaches of this region ever, if you when you hear him talk and, and you kind of learn a little bit about his background, um, he was invited by Paul Weir to to come observe practice, spent a week with the Lobo program, kind of give some feedback to Paul, was also the the guest speaker at a high school basketball coaches clinic last week for the Lobos that Paul Weir and UNM put on. And as you'll find out, I kind of like to think of Dick as the UNM or the New Mexico basketball coach that never was. This is a guy that has connections not only in the state. He went to Clovis High School. He was a star basketball player at Clovis High in the early 70s. Then he goes on to play for Don Haskins and learn from the Bear at UTEP. He transfers from there, goes to Weber State, plays for Neil McCarthy, and ends up getting hired by Neil McCarthy to coach at Weber State. His first job out of college as a, on a coaching staff was Neil McCarthy, who went on to great success at New Mexico State. From that time, he ends up, you know, connecting with Rick Majerus, who who Lobo fans obviously have very high and fond memories, um, very high opinion of and fond memories of when he was a head coach at Utah. And those rivalries, UNM and and Utah through the years were were great. But they first connected at Ball State where Dick Hunsicker was his top assistant and then takes over the team when Majerus goes to Utah. All Dick Hunsicker does from there is take Ball State to the Sweet 16 of the NCAA tournament. Almost knocked off that UNLV 1990 National Championship team. That was a two-point game in the Sweet 16 of that tournament. And Ball State almost ruined that great storied uh, um, run that UNLV had where they beat Duke by 30 in the national title game that year. So from there... You know, Dick coached in the CBA. Um, actually, the, before I get to that, he also coached with and, and participated in coaching clinics and coaching camps through the years with, with Bob King and Norm Ellenberger. So he had those connections during the mid nineties. He coached in the CBA where he coached Craig Neal at one point and just raves in this conversation we have today about Craig Neal's ability to scout opposing teams as a player. Still, Craig was already a, a wonderful scout and, um, that's certainly been Craig's reputation through his coaching career was he he knew how to scout. He knew his X's and O's as well as anybody. And Dick talks about that. He also coached at Manchester in Indiana, replacing Steve Alford. And Steve Alford, who was thought of so highly there at that school, kind of gave his blessing to to have Dick replace him. And and that's how he got the job. Dick and Steve Alford have a great relationship. We talk about that. He then reunites with Majerus in the late 90s. In the 2000-2001 season, when Majerus had some health issues, it was Dick Hunsaker who was the Mountain West Coach of the Year for Utah that year. As the interim coach, he, he replaced Majerus. And when the UNM Lobos were looking for a new coach in, to replace Fran Fraschilla before they hired Richie McKay, it was Don Haskins who was front and center. I was reading an AP article the other day about this from, from that era. He was the guy stumping for Dick Hunsaker to be the Lobos' next coach. And a lot of people thought Dick Hunsaker would have been perfect for this job, like I said, it's hard to find better or more connections to basketball in this state in this region. Um, instead, he parlayed his successful stint at Utah into starting up basically um, a program, a basketball program at Utah Valley that went from junior college level all the way up to Division One. They were a provision, kind of in that provisional state for a long time. They get into the NCAA as a full-fledged Division One basketball member, and then in their first year in the WAC, he wins a wins a WAC championship, and that was over. That was in an era where New Mexico State was still pretty good. Marvin Menzies was coaching them. And Dick gets to know a guy named Paul Weir, who was an assistant on that team. And it was Utah Valley that won a WAC championship in his, in Dick's first year, in the, in Utah Valley's first year in the, in the league, in the WAC. So he retired a couple years after joining the WAC. Um, he, he liked to get back into basketball, but. We have a long conversation about his career, but I also talked to him about his thoughts of observing Paul Weir and the global the basketball team. He's very complimentary of Paul. Of all those coaches I talked with, or, or I just mentioned that he's worked with, rather, it was Paul Weir who he, he made the comment at the coaches' clinic last week runs as good a practice as anybody he's ever seen. So a guy that has that kind of... Uh, foundation to base it on that that's pretty high praise for for what he observed with paul weir and it, it was a good conversation so this is the kind of stuff i hope to bring you with these podcasts here it is a conversation i had with dick hunsicker in my mind the new mexico coach that never was and uh my conversation with dick hunsicker
1: you're from clovis were, were you born in clovis
2: no no i uh went to junior high height and high school
1: Okay. Are air force is it air force related? I know I I went to high I high school in Alamogordo, so sometimes that's the case. But oh
2: yeah, uh, no, no. Okay. My father actually was in agriculture, and back in the uh, you know late sixties and early seventies, uh, sugar beet okay growing was uh, strong in that area, and so my father worked for uh, a sugar beet industry and worked with the uh, the farmers and. Growing and uh, cultivating uh, relationships to have grow crops.
1: I can honestly say this is the first uh, interview I've done that has a a sugar (laughs) beet connection. So,
2: and and, arguably one of the first ones, or not arguably possibly one of the first ones
1: I did discuss. (laughs) (laughs) Um, What was uh, what was your basketball background in the junior high and high school days? You you were a pretty good player, obviously. Got to. Got to go play college with it, so in New Mexico, that's, that's a pretty high level, so I would imagine you were a pretty good basketball player.
2: Well, I loved, uh, loved the game and was very fortunate to have some terrific coaches uh, through high school. Uh, the names that come out were uh, Steve White and Jimmy Joe Robinson, coach as a senior, but I developed a special relationship with Brooks Jennings. Who really was that father figure, and to this day is probably the, the person my heart feels closest to in uh, in the game of in the game of basketball, well, and, and as a person.
1: Well, I, and I want to kind of as we go through this, I want to touch on on the coaching influences. What what was the you, you talked about the, per, the the father figure and the personal connection, which is a huge part of this, and I know it's something that um maybe doesn't get broken down a whole lot, or enough anyway, by media and stuff. But as far as the X's and O's part of it goes, what what influence did you take from Clovis? Was there much?
2: Uh, well, from Clovis was just understanding, learning the different styles, ways of play, and the east side of uh, New Mexico was so influenced, and still is to this day, I'm sure, with Hobbes and yeah. the pressing, and the up-tempo way of play. Uh Jimmy Joe Robinson, Coach Robinson, brought that into his play his senior year, my senior year, with uh, really getting up and down the court. And uh, it just really, uh, that style was much more of a scoring fest versus even uh, the pressing and the defense. Hobbs's press was the, again, the, the big uh, foe that he had to overcome. And we never quite got. Into that as much, call the sum, sure, but uh, not to the degree and the commitment that uh, the Eagles had.
1: But Brooks Jennings and and um and what was Brooks Jennings' role at that time?
2: Well, Brooks Jennings is, is a was the head coach, I, and uh, it, a, until my junior
1: year, until he, junior, okay, he,
2: uh, yeah, he retired and uh started his uh. His officiating yeah. career a lot uh, following that, but uh, was again he he loved the game. We were, you know, that to this day I can still. Between my freshman and sophomore years, as we entered, as I entered high school, we used to go play one on one and horse and shooting games at the gym. Before this was in the. I looked at. That was in the 60s, <laughs> late 60s, like probably summer of 69. Before mm-hmm. that was what people did was work out in the summers. Um, you know, I can still hear his car hawking in the driveway to get out there and just go. <laughs> so,
1: well, you didn't cross uh, over then. That would have been probably before um, Bubba Jennings came along.
2: Uh, Bubba, Bubba would go chase the balls and rebound for me. <laughs>
1: He was and a heck, heck of a player, though, wasn't he? He became one. Bubba
2: was Bubba was the, the just amazing. I think today, And he played in the uh, the shooting emphasis of the of the day, you know, Bubba Jennings is, is truly one of the greatest shooters in the history of basketball. Really, and uh, just you know. He was incredible. I mean, his impact on the play and style and toughness, intelligence—you uh, know—he he he still is the standard. that anyone I've ever I've ever come across, and I've been blessed to have been around many many great players and special players, but he is the standard of a dedicated, committed player. Wow. In in my eyes.
1: And that's obviously coming from. Someone who's come across uh, a, a few players through the years, I would say.
2: I've been around to get a lot of guys at <laughs> different levels, stages, and uh, Bubba is the best.
1: Um, yeah, well, I, I guess, let me to wrap, put a bow on, on that part of this. I, I kind of want to know how often you were able to watch Bubba. He was obviously younger than you, um, but did you were you able to go back and watch him? Or, or how did you... Well, no,
2: no at that stage. I, I, I got to see him a, a couple times. Uh, in camps in the, in the summer. Okay. And you know, Bubba was scratching for a scholarship. Yeah. Going into his senior year in high school. That's right. And then he just had the uh, incredible year and uh, um, had just a wonderful career at Texas Tech.
1: Well, let me let me move on then to you. You obviously were good enough to get a, a scholarship of your own. Um, you played at UTEP. Was it? I guess I shouldn't assume. I assume you were on scholarship. Maybe you were a walk-on.
2: Uh, no.
1: Okay. I on scholarship. All right. Um. So you go to play for for Don Haskins, and I'm I'm curious in that short time that you were able to to play at UTEP with Don Haskins, what you you know what you stole for your coaching career from from the legendary from the Bear.
2: Well, uh, as I have shared many times, Coach Haskins probably. He imprinted my coaching philosophy more than anyone uh, as I say uh, my first my, my first practice in Division One basketball at UW was my first practice I'd ever seen or been involved with and my first game at Texas El Paso was the second Division One basketball game I'd ever had the opportunity to watch and witness it I, I was young, impressionable and had a wonderful uh group of guys I got a, had a chance to play with, uh very a couple of very special miners, uh, in uh James Forbes who played for the Olympics and Gary Brewster, who is arguably one of the greatest uh miners ever. And then there was a special guy there named Beto Batista. Okay who was local and kind of came out of nowhere, but was tougher than nails, competed, in. and taught me so much about being a simply day-in-and-day-out competitor.
1: And this was, for, for some context, for, for those who may not know, this was 72, about? Is that right? 72, 73? 73, correct. Yeah, 72, 72 right. season. season. Yep. Um, was was Don Haskins in as intimidating um, to players, as as fans probably suspect, he was.
2: I think it was a little bit more than they <laughs> suspected because they never had that opportunity to actually be on the back practice court in the locker room. And uh, you know, Coach Haskins was a uh, uh, a disciplinarian. His teams went out and you know competed, and the expectation that every day, every play at practice. Was going to be at the maximum effort uh, was really uh, what his program was built on, and uh, his defensive emphasis, uh, intensity, and, uh, uh, and, and and defending and rebounding. I mean, that's what you know. He won a national championship with, yeah. and beat a much more prominent, talented Kentucky team, and, and all those along the way, including you know the, the great game against Kansas. And so, uh, you know, that was very impressionable as I went through that freshman year and uh, had a chance to see the teams who we played and to see the style and, and experience. Um, you know, it was a, uh, a very, again, very impressionable on, on what happened to me and, and really didn't know how it was going to impact my future, but it
1: certainly had and did. Well, you, you shared with me when I saw you here in Albuquerque, Uh, over the weekend, or last week and and over the weekend. Um, when was the first time players started talking in practice at a typical, uh, UTEP (laughs) practice? Yeah, you know,
2: in, in this day of everybody has to, uh, have everything explained to them and, you know, we don't, uh, you know, before we used to be, you know, kids ask why. Today you have to have an explanation before they're not even, don't even need to ask why because you have to justify everything, you know, to, to, to young people and players, uh, you know, and I and I say this is really not an embellished story. That from I would say it was it had to be late January to early February before anybody, including the great James Forbes or Gary Brewster or Beto Batista, opened their mouth to ask a question, uh, even if it was not 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 the, not not the context of. Questioning what was going to happen, or I was like, just if you just might not quite heard it or understood it, nobody, you know, it was a very uh, intense and serious atmosphere. And so, uh, yeah, I always chuckle when, when guys uh, sometimes you have somebody that has too many questions uh, as a coach, and maybe uh, they could should listen a little bit more and yeah. just apply it. I, think I, I often share that story with with my teams of the years. They'll be able open their mouth till January.
1: But respect. I mean, there, there was respect in the, and um, it wasn't, you. your memories of, of Don Haskins and UTEP are certainly fond ones, I, I gather.
2: Absolutely. Yeah. I have to, again, just a, a special time, special era. And, again, obviously a Hall of Fame coach. Yeah. And one of the greatest that ever uh, coached the game and, and taught the game in the manner that he did it. and so many in so many instances, over tr- tr- significantly overachieved his talent level
1: I know he uh, he had influence well beyond the year you played um, there but you went from there and kind of had a connection that New Mexico basketball fans will know too you, you went from there to play at Weber State and who was your coach at Weber State
2: well I, I went to, to transfer to Weber State from from Texas El Paso, and uh, an assistant coach was Neil McCarthy, okay, and was very influential in uh, me, uh, y- you know, getting there, being there, and later on in my playing career, became the head coach, and I followed the spending eight years as an assistant coach to Coach
1: McCarthy. What what would you what would you say you kind of picked his brain about, or or gathered from him for your coaching career? Uh,
2: Neil was a great basketball coach. That at that time, again, I was, Neil was a a much more he was a controlled, you know, fundamentally sound uh, execution perfectionist with his teams, and uh, just a fundamental approach, uh, the teaching aspect of it, Neil was a fantastic teacher of the game, and uh, his free throw system that I borrowed and tweet today is taught universal, and through every level, Neil was teaching did a thesis, maybe you're aware, did his thesis on free-throw shooting. And everyone today shoots a a, a, a similar version with the basic key fundamentals that he taught, again, back in the, uh, I should say, 60s and the 70s.
1: And what was the, obviously, he wrote a whole thesis on it, and was was Dr. Free-throwing. In a nutshell, yeah
2: fundamentally sound, lack of movement in the free throw, the more concise, tight, delivery of the shot, and then consistent repetition each time.
1: He obviously um, is either famous or infamous um, in in New Mexico these days. Um, Have you, in any way, stayed in touch with McCarthy through the years?
2: Uh, We've been in contact.
1: Okay. He's um I know he had the, the great success the, the, the best success he had in New Mexico. Um he advanced some teams to the Sweet Sixteen, so obviously a lot of a lot of people love those McCarthy years, um, certainly in the southern part of New Mexico and um, had, had some uh, had some great success, but he had some great battles up here in Albuquerque as well in the pit. So
2: a great competitor. For For much a competitor. So. that's uh, certainly a, a, a common threat. Him and Coach Haskin and Coach McCarthy and uh, and Rick Majerus were tremendous
1: competitors. Well, and the, let's move on then to to Majerus. The, I mean the 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 tree of influence that you've been able to kind of sprout from yourself, I guess, um, is is kind of second to none. There's not a whole lot of people that can claim um, the influences that you've had, and, and you do go from. Correct me if I'm wrong. You go from assistant coach at Weber State. To Ball State, where where Rick was coaching, is that correct, Rick Majerus?
2: We went there together, yes. In, uh, okay. In, in, uh, in, uh, in eighty
1: seven. What was uh What was it like coaching with uh with Rick Majerus? I, I guess in the well, early years, and and was it different well, from the Ball State years to the to later to the Utah years?
2: We had a uh, Rick and I met. I was still a player. At Weaver State, okay. and he is just in his, I think, second or third year of coaching at Marquette. Okay. We met in Durango, Colorado, at a basketball camp there at uh, Fort Lewis College, and forged forged a relationship that uh, was uh, certainly with a common the the common denominator was always basketball. I loved the game, and Rick loved the game, and very strong relationship built off of that
1: let, let me interject real quick was this the tournament or I mean the summer camp that um, Norm Ellenberger was involved in by chance no okay no, no, no. now he you worked in a Norm Ellenberger camp at some point did, did you not uh,
2: yes back in yes way back in he
1: yes okay I did. okay uh-huh. um, and I, I, I for some reason I thought that was the one up in Colorado but um,
2: uh, well no like, like I know that was again that was in Colorado was Bob King's camp
1: there we go okay
2: at, at, a, at, a, at a resort in the mountains
1: <laughs>
2: where we the camp was held on on uh, asphalt
1: so you guys were uh, doing courts. stuff outside
2: so we were all outside and uh, uh, okay. again Norma's assistant goats, and we all know that
1: yeah
2: which Norm probably did, and I think it was true. I don't remember ever seeing him with the shirt on. He needs to get some sun. So. He
1: can't. So, <laughs> so you knew Bob King and Norm Ellenberger through some of those? Yes. All right. So the Majerus bond, though, you, you do meet at a camp. You guys have that, that bond. And the Ball State years, you had a pretty good run. You had a really good State
2: The Ball State years, as I was uh the two years we spent together in, in Ball State put together an Incredible run uh, from a, a, a school that really didn't have a, a tradition, and just put together uh, the funnest years. where a team that was we were, we were nationally ranked uh, and upset uh, Pittsburgh.
1: The, that was the first, the the first, in the first round NCA tournament, yep. and just
2: uh, just really. Uh, and, and you're talking in Hoosiers, where they really embraced the team, and uh, you know when winning, winning was, you know, sometimes winning is a relief versus being fun and exuberant. And yeah. that was one of those times of, of, of my career where winning was was just so fun. It's just, you know, you, <laughs> sometimes you had to, you know, you pinch yourself to realize you're actually pulling this off.
1: Well, while he kind of parlayed that success in 89 to the Utah job, you stuck around and you got the Ball State head coaching job and actually advanced a, a, a round further um, the, the following year, 1990. You took Ball State to the Sweet 16.
2: Yes, I mean, that was uh, had, a, had a, a fantastic group of young guys and transition is tough. You know, it's a, uh, a coach, you know, you're playing for the leader and Rick's well, again, like those mentors were a very strong different uh, intimidating uh, figure. And his uh, strength was that discipline and so when you're taking over for that and uh, my physical stature doesn't exactly lead to the same presence of a Haskins or McCarthy or even, or, or Majerus. Sure. And so you have a, and everybody at that time, you know, we were again no longer stuck up on anybody and winning became the expected. And so to get that team uh, through the NCAA tournament and, way the, and, and a, the way the games went, where three times, three consecutive nights in the NCAA tournament, the that that game comes down to the last possession. And fortunately, we win the first two of them and had a chance to win the third well, uh, against what people claim to be the greatest team in the history in UNLV.
1: Well, yeah, I mean, I was looking at the bracket earlier this this morning. And, I mean, UNLV that year, that, for those that don't know, in 1990, the year you took Ball State to the Sweet 16, and UNLV won the national title that year, in the five other tournament games that UNLV had, aside from playing you guys in the Sweet 16, which was a two-point win for UNLV, they aver- their average margin of victory was 22 points, and three of those wins were by 30, including the national title game against Duke. This was a UNLV team that was just tearing through the field, except for one game, and that was... You guys almost ruined it all.
2: We had an opportunity, and uh yeah, the, the biggest thing is I think I had a group of guys that were fearless, and competed and took a back seat to no one. And I think, you know, as, as life has moved on, I think somewhat as a young coach, the, the fear, fearlessness that I had and possessed, I think that you don't really realize the moment you're in. Yeah. And, you know, you, you know you're know, just that old sign of approaching like the next game on the schedule. Well, that truly was how we did it. And, uh, you know, it was... Say uh, maybe a moment. Uh, we were one of the, the, the earlier uh, mid-major breakthroughs, and okay. we're very, very close to to really making a, a, a huge national statement.
1: You're one of the now kind of famous twelve seeds. Everyone says pick a twelve seed. <laughs> yes, yes, you guys started yes, that. that.
2: was a, ma- a magical twelve seed.
1: So true. Um, I one more on that in can take some of your teams out of the equation if you want, um, or, or keep them in. It's fine. But uh, how good was that UNLV team compared to college teams you've seen through the years? The 1990s.
2: It's, it's, it's physicalness
1: uh,
2: and tenacity. Tenacious. They're just, yeah. just. They were competitors. Uh, they were relentless uh, in in so many ways, and uh, they they really were a special team of uh, just very hungry, competitive kids.
1: That's, uh, I mean, and, and you beat two teams to get there too, so that was a heck of a run.
2: Well, we ended we, we Gary Payton's Player of the Year, that was the Oregon State team, Gary Payton. So
1: you so Gary so that, Payton and Oregon State, and then And, and, and,
2: and, and then Louisville was uh, the perennial UNCA you know, power. And Benny, and, you know, Benny Benny and, being, and being about, Louisville's probably about 50 miles, 60 miles from, from Muncie, Indiana, so that was very special for our fans.
1: You and I do want to kind of tap into the the Majerus connection a little bit more in a second, but I, I want to touch on the CBA years. You, you coached a couple seasons in the CBA. Um, did Did you ever coach against Craig Neal in that time?
2: I coached Craig Neal.
1: Oh, I'm sorry, you coached him. What What team did I coached you coach
2: him additionally in, in Fort Wayne? Oh, okay. Uh, when I uh, left uh, Ball State and uh, Rick Barry. The Hall of Famer, Rick Berry, was the head coach, and uh, Clifford Ray, and those two had teamed up to win the uh, world championship with the Golden State Warriors, and so I got to spend a couple months with those two, which was, uh, again, another career highlight, hearing all their stories and uh, tales of the past, and uh, that was really a, a wonderful time, and I've often said, Probably none of the old timers that uh, that uh, missed. I think uh, Rick Berry would have had that $200 million contract blink of an eye today. And uh, what a, a fabulous player and, and, and a great coach. And um, I have all the respect in the world for him.
1: You, uh, in, in coaching Craig, in, in, I know it was a very brief time. Um, what kind of player was Craig? He was uh, obviously a pass-first kind of point guard at Georgia Tech, if, if I re- recall correctly.
2: In- Craig-, Craig Neal was incredibly cerebral. I love scouting. I love preparation. I used to lean on Craig to help me with the opponents because his familiarity with the league. And he knew the opposition's, the coach's system play, Inside and out, uh, a fantastic basketball mind.
1: His, his scouting was was uh, his scouting certainly wasn't what got any kind of critiquing. Um, people people always told me how good of a, a scout he was, especially offensively. He could he could draw up plays based on what the other teams tendency were tendencies are, and um, his his scouting seems to uh, to be quite a strong suit for Craig.
2: Well, he he was just again. A, 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 to me, a basketball guy. He understood uh, as a point guard, as you say, a cerebral point guard, uh, his size and, and ability to see the floor, to see things develop, uh, anticipate them developing, uh, were, were terrific.
1: And coincidentally, when you leave the CBA, you, uh, again, if I'm following correctly, <laughs> you, you go to Manchester and you replace a head coach there by the name of Steve Alfer.
2: Yes, I did. We have
1: a lot of a
2: lot of connections here, it, don't we? It's it is I, Yeah, that, um, I mean, that, I, I
1: don't, it, I don't know if you knew Steve at all, but he is who you replaced there.
2: Oh yes, oh yes, yes. Without Steve's blessings, I don't believe I would have been coaching at Manchester College. And uh, Steve was, uh, Steve has, I, Steve has such fantastic instincts as a coach. Uh, I think his 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 greatest strengths. You know, as all coaches we're always trying to um, kind of get the other guy's secrets understand what makes them tick or what their, what their philosophy is offensive, defensive, etc and I really uh, in following Steve I in working with the kids and the players and, uh, I really and, and, and following Steve's career I think Steve just has some, some, some fantastic uh, abilities and instincts and feel that uh, has led him to be, again, one of the
1: greatest coaches in the game. I think from there um, you, you kind of get back into what a lot of Lobo fans here in Albuquerque anyway probably might kind of be more familiar with. Those connections were obviously pre the, the Steve and the Craig connections are, are pre their time with uh, UNM, before their time with UNM. So when you reunite, I guess, with Rick Majerus at Utah, that's when you know things were were really really going good with that rivalry with Utah and UNM and and I think it was was it ninety the ninety eight season or ninety eight ninety nine maybe that you reunite with Rick Majerus at Utah.
2: Yes, he uh, he never had any staff movements. He, he tried to uh, many times and asked that uh, to wanted to have me join him out here, but there was never that opportunity never opened. And after the Final Four, this is. Was, uh, added, he was added. He's able to add a position of director of operations to his staff, and I came out the first year in that capacity. And that was Andre Miller's senior year, which was a team that was I believe I believe we were I believe we were five and five. I think we were five and five, okay. and won 23 in a row. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Andre Miller just took over in, in a way I don't think I've ever seen in my career one player impact the success of a of a team and impact a game as I watched Andre
1: do. That was the uh, that was the the heyday of that WAC conference. That was, you know, I I suppose not unlike any conference, there were some teams at the bottom that maybe are forgettable to some, but but those teams at the top there in the late 90s and that, that that was a fun time for fans, I know. And, uh, oh, you know
2: the, the level of the play was incredible and and I give Rick a lot of credit in, in raising the bar because when someone comes in and, and say Rick somewhat over-recruited the league with his national stature, I think he did do it a bit, uh, to a degree, and everyone else really picked up from Cougars, the Lobos, the Cowboys, uh, uh, the minor—you know, Coach Hassett was still yeah. there in the league. And that, in fact, that was the time when the league expanded to 16 teams, if I'm not mistaken. Correct. Yeah. And there were uh, there were good, terrific teams. Bill Self at Tulsa. Uh, just keep going down the list. The league was amazing at that time. And and that is another kudos out there to, to Carl Benson. Who Somewhat uh, was controversial at that time. Sure. what a visionary he was.
1: I know he actually, if I'm not mistaken, just this past year announced his retirement um, from the Sun So I think
2: that's correct. But, but what a visionary! Those
1: uh those basketball years with uh, with Rick in Utah, um, and, and obviously in 2000 was it 2000-2001 season when you became the interim coach because he, mm-hmm. I guess, initially went down with a knee injury, but then maybe he had some other medical issues later in the season and you, uh, your team that year in 2000-2001 when you were interim coach did did quite well. Co-champions, I believe?
2: Uh, well, I think, you know, we, we were the number one seed in the conference tournament and, uh, and it went through growing pains. You know, that was a what really a challenge because, again, at that stage, Utah, literally almost every game was a national TV game and that was early in the math uh, mass broadcasts of all college basketball it was all you know pre-set to, to have the Utes of the Jerish on yeah and so every game every uh, they had the midnight plus the midnight madness was there midnight the, yep. what was called the midnight snack and so you know we had we must have had five or six tip-offs at 10 p.m.
1: well the, and, the big uh, monday games i think too right
2: yeah it was big monday that, Exactly right. That's where the, the tip-offs are so late. And uh, anyway, and the opposition was so geared and ready to go. And that was a. Uh, and I had it. Brought, really, was an inexperienced team of playing together. And so we had some. We had our challenges. And uh, again, to to get through that year and win the conference championship was really a, a special, special achievement. Uh, so much credit to the, to the kids and, and hanging in, in there, because again, they were they came there to play for Rick Majerus and so it was a uh, it was a uh, again a, a, a quite an experience and uh, I feel very fortunate to have uh, been able to have the success we had
1: what do you take from rick more than anything i guess um from from just the relationship you have with rick what what's the takeaway that maybe fans never saw i mean fans loved rick here in albuquerque i mean of course they yes. had boom like crazy because he was an opposing coach the fans here loved rick majerus
2: well, the, the takeaway simply. Well, again, uh, one thing I'll say, maybe because of, of the public perception of Rick was I always since Rick was a real guy. I mean, you know, Rick Rick became bigger than life. Uh, as I was down there, you know, an analogy would be doing that clinic. Yeah. If there was a clinic, if there was a clinic going on in the in, in 2000, and at that time, Bobby Knight, uh, Mike Shueseski, and you know, Rick Pitino and Rick Majerus were all speaking. 80% of that crowd is going to be in the Majerus gym wow. listening to him. And, you know, he was that big and that much of an impact on the game. Um, nobody could infiltrate the, or, 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 or not infiltrate but uh, combine the personality, the humor, and the incredible knowledge, discipline that, that Rick had. a I say I've never come across or known any coach that that lived the vocation as he did. Yeah. I mean, he never did anything that wasn't somewhat connected to basketball and um, his uh, desire to learn. I mean, that was again this is pre-internet, pre-every national game, pre-synergy. <laughs> yeah. That in learning what the guy down in uh, you know, I used to use an analogy. What the guy was doing in and carry with his matchup zone. Uh, you know, Rick was going to go find that guy. Really? and And talk with him. And just, that was his personality. He would just seek out to learn so much about the game. And, and ultimately, I think sometimes uh, that might have, uh, in his latter days at Utah, frustrated him because he was such a wealth of knowledge. He knew so much about the game. He had coached, you know, he had on that team, you know, Keith Van Horn, Mike Goliak, Andre Miller. I mean, three, uh, arguably, just those three could be as good as elite whack players ever in the history of the the conference. And he had them all at once. And I I think, you know, then they graduated his, again, Rick's vast knowledge. You know, the new group of kids, you know, the, the old saying goes is, you know, Rick's kind of moved on Knowledge-wise, but those kids come in; their their slate's clean. Yeah. I mean, they're 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 still 18, 19 years old, and he's got to reteach, uh, you know, remold, and so I think that uh, uh, you know I, I I think his his scope of knowledge sometimes fresh became a, a bit of frustration at times for him with the, with the upcoming young kids.
1: Was. Some of those battles that you you were a part of with UNM in the pit and at, at Utah, but for fans here, they remember some of those here in the pit, and that was when the pit was as loud as it's ever been. Um, certainly, trying they're trying now to to get it back to those days. But do, do you recall you know walking down that pit ramp and some of those battles here in, in Albuquerque with some of those Lobo teams?
2: Oh yeah, they, they were intense. I mean, that's that, as I say, they started that airplane and. They start that airplane at, at six o'clock and it wouldn't turn off till, <laughs> till that final uh, horn. And that was just a uh, incredible time. The fans, you know, I did. It is true. You know, Rick, Rick enjoyed playing in Albuquerque as much as any place he ever coached as the opposition. Yeah. And, uh, it was it, truly a special, special time. And, the pit in albuquerque is it's a, it's it's special to it's a special place to be and it's a, it's a treat to be on the other in the other bench now you might not like the results but <laughs> to play in that atmosphere and, and, and have the passion that the fans possess it's it's really a, a second to none environment
1: how many times did you guys eat at Sadie's the night before a game in albuquerque <laughs>
2: It's not how many times we ate it, Sadie. It's exactly the same night, how many times we ate it. Sadie? <laughs> the that same was, day.
1: That was multiple times a day, sometimes. This
2: is true story. So I think that first year I'm back with Rick, and, and we played in El Paso the night before. We caught an early flight. The team was gonna he let the team sleep in. I think it was a Saturday, Monday. Yeah. Game, and he let the team sleep in. And they were gonna leave around noonish. He and I got up and flew out about eight thirty. And that is exactly why we flew out so we could get to the first we went directly to Sadies for,
1: <laughs> for breakfast. <laughs> well he was uh, his his trips to Sadies were legendary and, and I think people here may or may not believe it, but from what I've heard, as you're verifying, there were not only trips to Sadies, sometimes there were multiple trips on the same day to Sadie's when he was inside. there were
2: multiple trips on the same day and that and that breakfast must have had five entrees ordered <laughs>
1: <That's> <laughs> I'm
2: talking good. full entrees
1: yeah. ordered <laughs> not all sure. <on> the carts <laughs> I'm sure and uh well Sadie's uh Sadie's certainly loved Rick and and uh you know New Mexico and Albuquerque loved Rick as well and um I know your time with him uh, after that season you, you were Mountain West for those that may not remember, you you were Mountain West Coach of the Year that year. Is that correct? The, the year you were interim coach. Yes. You yep. you go from there and you you coach six seasons at Utah Valley, where you won three three league titles. One. Thirteen
2: years. Thirteen
1: years. I, I'm sorry, 13, Yeah, i I'm, I'm looking at it right now. Thirteen years, and you you won. Was it was three league titles.
2: Well, we came in as a, it was a junior college. Right. It would be like going to the next, you know, junior college and turning into it, Division One. It it never been done in the modern era of time. And we had a, the NCA did not know how to deal with that. They'd never really been approached with that. They didn't have any bylaws for it or against it. And so they ended up, we had a seven year.
1: Yeah, I'm uh, looking at it now. It looks like, O oh, was it oh, 03 through 09 or maybe 02? What's that? 02 through 09 was, that you were an independent. I
2: was, I, I was from 02 to 13. Right. I and mean, shoot, I was over there from, from, I was there, I'm sorry i uh, there from O2 to 50.
1: Right, but O2 to O9, I think you guys were an independent. Is that is that what
2: you're classified Correct. as? Correct. Correct. Okay. We were we were a, a in well, independent provisional. I mean, I I have a, I had a player there named by the name of Ryan Toulson, who is 1,000th of a percentage point from being the all-time greatest free throw shooter in the history of college basketball. I mean, this kid was this kid is just an amazing shooter ever. And none of his records are in the NCAA mm. books because of this provisional transitional period we were, we we're in. But, and to have we played, we, we, you know, during that time we beat Arizona State, uh, Boise, and had some wonderful success, great wins, perfect teams. And, uh, but trust me, there was a lot of challenges in, in, in recruiting and building, and having a competitive program. Uh, without any type of there's no at that time there's no CIT or CBI or any of those other postseason tournaments that take teams uh, out there uh, like that. And so it was it was a it was a tremendous and, uh, challenge, but also a lot of fun.
1: I'll bet. And you uh, in the latter years you you reunite yourself, I guess, with with the WAC when Utah Valley joined in. I think was it twelve or
2: thirteen. Uh, we were. I believe it goes we were actually admitted to the league in the fall of 2012 okay. and were a full-fledged then competed in 13 14 as a full-fledged member and that was a bit of a, a, a I don't want to say it was a frustrating time for me because we had tried to get in the whack for a couple of years and, and were pushed aside and then when the league imploded, um, we were admitted. But during this period of time and you're recruiting, you know, when you're recruiting to play for, and your stats don't even make the record books, that's really difficult to recruit. And then, and without certainly any hope of it, every kid's dream to go to the NCAA tournament and all those different things. And then all of a sudden we're in the league and we have, Perennial power left in the in the Aggies and um, Seattle had already gotten to the WAC and there are some some very competitive uh, uh, teams that uh, that that was a, a while and so I was uh, that took a while for the recruiting to, to catch up.
1: Right, I know you picked up. Uh, I mean, you did win the WAC your first year. Um,
2: winning the first, winning the WAC the first year and, and, and uh, was 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 arguably the biggest achievement of my career really because uh, well, again <laughs> just <laughs> from where we at where we were at and what we were doing to win the whack over the New uh, the Mexico State Aggies was very special that New Mexico State Aggie team was one of the best groups that, been a- that they had put us a- been assembled down there and uh, somebody was just talking recently I heard about you know they they almost they knocked off well they came in overtime with an overtime knocking off Tango State. Yeah. In the uh in say, tournament that year. We we lost in the semifinals of the conference tournament. Playing in well, the regular season was
1: well very yeah, that, special that, that thirteen fourteen season for, for listeners who may need names to sort of recall what Aggie team that was. That was Daniel Mullings was their was their lead guard there. They had they had some size. They had the Farway, the the big man inside, six foot ten and just Built like a, a a football player. I mean, he was huge, and Simbular was on that team, and that, that was a good, as you said. That I mean, that was a, a heck of an Aggie team. That was one of their really good ones. That,
2: that was a great Aggie team, and uh, I'm not sure how they fared against the locals. But uh, the architect of that team is now running and coaching the locals. So.
1: Well, let's let's fast forward then to to so you, you were here last week. Um, it, it was that time in the whack where you you start to get to know, obviously, the New Mexico State Aggies and and at that time an assistant coach on that team was Paul Weir. Um, before we get to last week, that that's the connection, I guess, of, with Paul Weir, but what was it like coaching against the Aggies and, and what was Paul Weir's influence on those teams? Marvin Menzies, clearly the head coach, we, we, we know that. But did Paul have an imprint on those teams that you can recall?
2: Well, again, I think exactly his... his uh his meticulous uh, attention to detail, I think his, um, and obviously, again, his recruiting impact was all over that
1: team. I know some of the guys I mentioned, Daniel Mullings and and Simbular, and some of those Canadian connections that uh, Paul obviously being from Canada himself, um... He, he was the uh, at least the starting point on the recruiting of a lot of that roster and a lot of the NMSU rosters through the years.
2: Well, yeah, again, the uh, the personnel level uh, New Mexico State was, I think, enviable to certainly not only to myself but to and, and a lot of folks in the land of enchantment, uh, uh, but nationwide. And uh, Paul Weir's reputation grew quickly, has, has grown uh, rapidly, and his uh, acumen as a basketball coach, I know his, his defensive uh, imprint he had on those Aggie teams uh, was was tremendous.
1: Well, I want to fast forward then to what brought you to Albuquerque last week. Um, Paul, Weir? certainly, uh, I guess the, the anchor of it was a, a coaching clinic on Saturday that you you spoke at, and um, you were a part of your Really, the keynote coach at that coach's clinic. Um, but you came out a, a week earlier, and, and obviously, as we've discussed, you have just almost kind of hard to believe how many ties to New Mexico through the years, obviously from here, but obviously to the coaching connections with Neil and Alford and, and Bob King and Norm Ellenberger and, and the, the coaches that have come through the pit through the years. You have a ton of connections, so there was, uh, you coming back to New Mexico wasn't. Necessarily unique in any way, except that Paul Weir is uh, isn't really cut from that cloth. That he wasn't in those Mountain West years and he wasn't in those mm-hmm. late '90s whack team. So, why? Uh, what what relationship with Paul Weir developed that decided to to bring you for him to bring you back and and I guess you spent the whole week with him uh, last week, a whole week here in Albuquerque. And kind of, what did you do last week?
2: Well, I think that there's a, a number of mutual. Uh, Connections and relationships with Paul and I have, and uh, i I very flattered that he would invite me to speak at the clinic and to uh, come watch his practices and uh, allow me to be uh, just in the program. And that was really, it was really a lot of, I had a great time, it was, I can't tell you how Impressed I was as I came away from there. Um, you know, you really get to see how the inside works, and as a former coach or a coach, as I uh, understand what there's a reason why so many times people, as a head coach, you sometimes are, are doing something or you make a decision or you want something done that even those right around you don't quite grasp or understand. And I can, I saw all those things with Paul and uh, the things that he was doing uh, with a vision, with a long-term, with a big-picture vision of it in the way he conducts his programs, uh, builds his team. Um, you know, I was fascinated with this, as everyone else is, with the style of play as much as I've been around it and, and, and always consider myself to be a student of the game. I had never really been privy or, or had the opportunity or, or really an inside look at that style and how, what it's about and how it's put together that Paul is and did implement into the, uh, UNM program. And I can't tell you how impressed I am with it. And, um uh, it just, um, you know, it, it, it's such a. Uh, it's not only exciting, and you know, uh, the fans enjoy it, the players enjoy it, but there's so much work and discipline that goes into that. And so it was a. Uh, again, I can I, I just had a. I had a wonderful time. and uh, Very appreciative
1: of that. And you observed the practices. I know I, I saw you earlier in the week in and- you're taking some notes and stuff. Well, I don't know how, how in-depth you want to go with this, but I, I'm curious, what kind of feedback do you give to him? That That's why he invites coaches sometimes to be around the program is he wants them to critique what he's doing. Um, he, he doesn't necessarily always get it from his assistants, and that's not a, a knock on his assistants. They're they're young, up-and-coming assistants too, but he, he wants people like you to tell him you know, what he may be doing wrong or what how he might be able to improve this or that. What, what kind of advice do you give him when you're watching one of his practices and, and uh, what kind of conversations did you have with him last week?
2: Well, you know, that, that's, a, again, is for three days of watching practice as a veteran coach, you know, it's like you come in for... You kind of got to watch it. By the end of And I really didn't have... Uh, you know, you got to really know and see what they're doing, what they're trying to achieve. And more than anything, I think, for me, was more of an approval. Uh, again, coming from a different camp and style of play. As I watch what they're doing and how they're doing it, um, I really say that uh, in our discuss, in my discussions and talks with Paul about things that they're doing, he has a total handle. You know, if someone's going to, I don't think some, I don't think, I, I certainly did not have it. And if you come in and you're going to uh, uh, explain the weaknesses and the the, uh, the, and the uh, loopholes of what he's trying to achieve and do with his team, I think he's going to be two or three steps ahead of you. And he knows what his objective is. Yeah. And as I, as I shared earlier, as I saw uh, Over three days of of the practice and being around the program, um, he knows exactly what he's trying to achieve and and how he's trying to build and develop it. Um, You know, I I did not see in the time I was there, I I saw again a a high energy, a very uh, detail oriented uh, practice that was being taught on the move.
1: Um, not a lot of, I, of movement. Yeah.
2: And 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 that again and then if the teaching times would come with their, when they would have somewhat of a their, their early morning sessions or through film. And I I just really I really liked the way all the
1: parts and pieces were put together. Is That relationship, one where you and he speak often. Um, I, I don't know how often you guys speak. Uh,
2: we spoke occasionally, yes. Okay. Um, and, 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 and have in the
1: past. What did you What did you get from that coaches' clinic? Not your part of it so much. I know you broke down press offense. Um, some of the other speakers, you, you were really the only X's and O's kind of speaker at that coach's clinic. What did you What did you think about that?
2: I love that course, Clay. That was fantastic. I I don't know, you know, how it was, you know, again, uh, Paul's brainchild to put that together and and who he brought in, but what a tremendous uh, opportunity to hear things you generally don't hear. And, you know, I think I made the statement: it's not what you do, it's how you do it. And you can get so many X's and O's. There are so many different successful type of philosophies. But it's all the things around it that make it is, is a success. And so having a strength and conditioning coach address the group, the, I love the analytical. I mean, that's the, the wave of the future. The psychologist, uh, you know, Coach Snow's presentation was superb with, uh, you know, how to, how for a college coach to transition into D1, which is a, you know, everybody wants to progress their careers. It might, it might have been for the junior high coach to progress to the high school. Yeah. Uh, I just thought it was a, a very uh a special clinic that uh, uh, I, I hope those that were at tennis were very appreciative of.
1: Well, I'll ask one more for Lobo fans listening, and that's you watched three practices. You are not the, the local reporter. You're not the local media by any stretch. So what as somewhat of an outsider, did you think of the talent level on this team? I, I know there's some, some good teams in the Mountain West this year and stuff like that. I won't ask you to critique anything else you know about the rest of the league but just from talent what did you see on this Lobo team is is uh, or compared to some of the teams you've coached through the years
2: well I think it, it, it's gonna take some time to put everything together to, to totally get committed to uh, the, the system that's being played and the the energy level that and discipline that's uh, required but I see a, a you know a very by the time they, they get into conference, I see a very promising team developing. Um, I think that, it, again, the the inexperience of playing with one another um, takes time. The acceptance of roles, because when you have, you know, the group that's there that come in for different reasons, um, once they totally put their... Self agendas in their locker and, yes. and leave it there. Then I think that, I think they have a, again a, a really bright future.
1: Dick, what's next for you? You, you want to get back into basketball?
2: Uh, I like to do something. You know, I, I think I have. Uh, I still have energy, and passion. I love the game, and uh, um, you know, I don't. I don't have any uh, agenda to to what or where. I, I just. I, I would enjoy. Know, is the right scenario being involved with the game.
1: Look, I, I, I certainly appreciate this. It's a lot longer than the half hour I told you it would be, so I, I appreciate the time on this. Um, I, the, the connections to this program that I cover and to New Mexico in general, I, I think are uh, just really amazing to me. That um, you, you almost seem like the New Mexico coach that, that never was, I guess. You, you and, and you might have been up for it, I guess, at one point, too. But...
2: Um, that's a that's a unique statement. <laughs> but yeah. I, you know, I'll, and I enjoy this with you too because I just feel your passion and your love. You, you have that, and you, even our this is our little conversation you shared back in New Mexico State days. And, yeah, uh, I can tell how much you love this. So that that to me, I that that at this stage for me that that means a lot because that's
1: uh, that's how I am. And, and I love those that love the game. Well, I appreciate you saying love that. That, does, that means a lot because I do love it. Yeah. I, look, my, my worst yeah. day at work, I'm, I'm covering a, a game. <laughs> so
2: that, that's
1: nice. Can't beat that.
0: Well, there you go. There you have it. There's my conversation with Dick Hunsicker, a guest of Paul Weir's last week around the Lobo program to watch practice, to be a guest speaker at the high school uh, coaches' clinic that UNM had in the pit last weekend. So. Thank you very much for the time, Dick, for, for sharing all those stories. And thank you, listeners, for listening to Episode 17 now of this Talking Grammar Podcast. I will give you my usual ask right now if you are subscribing on iTunes, Please give us a rating, give us a review, do what you can there. I'll always take the feedback for future guest ideas, whatever you guys think um, about the podcast. I, I do want to uh, share these conversations I have on The Beat with you throughout the season coming up. I know uh, the, the audio quality isn't always all that good. This was a, a recording from my phone. Sometimes it'll be in an airport. Sometimes I'll just have my digital recorder with me at a practice and I may just you know, strike up a conversation with somebody there. So uh as best I can I will will get the audio right for you. But for the most part these are just sort of conversations that come up on the beat. So um Do appreciate you listening. I know next week there'll be the Mountain West Conference media tournament or media conference rather. The preseason polls will come out. I think the Lobos will probably be picked third in the Mountain West in the preseason. They could have been second on a lot more ballots prior to the Jaquan Lyle to the to Jaquan Lyle um, injury, the ruptured Achilles from last week. But I still think they'll be third in the Mountain West in the preseason polls. I also think that uh, Nevada will be the runaway favorite to win the league, and and they should be. They're going to be a top ten national team. So have a lot of info coming your way. just start pouring it on next week once the media conference starts and I get to talk with all the coaches around the league and some of the players around the league as well so it's it's time it's that time guys it's uh, college basketball's here next Friday August uh, or I'm sorry October 19th next Friday will be the Cherry Silver game and um, I think uh, I think a lot of fans who haven't yet been able to see the Lobos will be impressed with their athleticism with their size they certainly have a, a lot more size and athleticism and a lot more raw talent at this point, I will say that any team I've covered probably since that 1314 14 Lobo team that had Alex Kirk, Kendall Williams, Cam Baristow, um Hugh Greenwood the the first year of the Craig Neal era that that team this is probably the most talented I've top to bottom that I've covered since then so um, people will like seeing it uh, got a long way to go before I can tell you if they're going to be quite as good as last year's team can or became at the end of the season because they clicked from a chemistry and a buy-in standpoint that this year's team hasn't shown yet but but how could they they, they haven't played any games yet so um, we'll see if they if they buy in like last year's team if they do they they got a chance to to be a pretty good team, uh, this does have a chance to be a good team. I think the Mountain West has three, three teams that have NCAA tournament potential. Obviously, anybody can win the Mountain West tournament, so let's just throw that out of the equation. I'm talking three teams that actually have the the potential. To to build NCAA tournament resumes during the non-conference and regular Mountain West regular season play, and that's San Diego State, Nevada clearly, and I, I do believe that even with the uh, Jaquan Lyle injury, that this New Mexico team can still build an NCAA tournament resume. Um, not guaranteeing it, I don't think the odds are in their favor uh, to do so. I don't think the Mountain West will get three teams in, but I do think those are the two of those three teams might be going to the NCAA tournament this year, or I'll I'll predict that two of those three teams will be going to the NCAA tournament this year. Nevada and then one of either San Diego State or New Mexico so it'll be interesting uh, Mountain West is certainly a much better league right now than it was in the past few years and that's exciting exciting for me as a reporter to cover the league exciting for a lot of fans around the conference to watch so things are heating up it's about to get that time so again appreciate you listening um, listen to all the past archived episodes either on iTunes, SoundCloud or abqjournal.com slash sports and until next time this has been the Talking Grammar Podcast and this is Jeff Grammar with the album Kirky Journal.